All right, good morning, everyone. I'd like to begin this morning by reading from the book of Isaiah, uh, in chapter 8, beginning in verse 16, and we're going to read on into chapter 9. This is the word of the true and living God. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will even look eagerly for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. When they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished, and it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. For there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father. Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I just... I want to thank you for these folks that you've gathered here this morning. Thank you for making us a body, for calling us to yourself through your Son. Lord, I pray uh, that your name will be exalted, Father, that Christ will be magnified, Lord, that the spotlight will be shown on him as I speak this morning. Lord, I pray that you guard my lips from speaking falsehood and Lord, help me to Speak your truth in a way that's helpful to your people. God, open the hearts of your people to receive this truth and help them to accept it with faith, to store it in their hearts, and to put it into practice in their lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> All right. Uh, happy to be back up here this morning. As always, uh, I consider it an honor and a solemn responsibility to stand before God's people and preach His Word. So um, I'm going to go ahead and, and uh, give a fair warning. I'm going to go 
little bit long this morning. For some of you, that's no surprise, but um, I'm saying this just by way, especially uh, for those of us with little ones, if they get restless or you feel the need to uh, get up and, and walk out with them. No, no, never any judgment here for that, and uh, certainly won't hurt my feelings any. So, uh, As Jason mentioned last week, we've decided to take a break from our, our study in Colossians for the four Sundays between now and Christmas and take the opportunity that this season affords us uh, to preach on the circumstances surrounding the first advent of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or to put it another way, we're going to preach some Christmas sermons. Right? And it's my job this morning to begin uh, by setting the stage, so to speak, for the unfolding of the story that we celebrate uh, during this blessed season. <clears throat> and I'd like to begin by talking about uh, what the world was like, what this world was like when the Word became flesh and condescended to dwell with men some 2,030 years ago, give or take. Right? I want us to see, especially, that this world was a very dark place. And what the Bible calls the Gentile nations, uh, it was particularly dark, as it always had been before that time. Uh, since the days of Cain and Seth, every people group that formed outside of God's special revelation of himself dwelt in absolute darkness and chaos. Right? We read throughout the Old Testament of many corrupt and evil civilizations. Uh, prior to the flood, we saw that all the people of the world, save Noah, were hopelessly wicked. So Adam, Adam had fallen and sin had infected all of creation. Uh, resulting in death and destruction and decay. Um, a portion, a portion of God's heavenly host of angelic beings had rebelled against him as well. And he had fallen sons of God coming down and taking for themselves wives from the daughters of men. And they begat corrupt offspring that the Bible calls the Nephilim, uh, the mighty men of renown. Right? And it's very likely that these uh, fallen angels and these Nephilim uh, then began to teach the people black arts and demonic rituals, and that they demanded and received worship for themselves from the people. And that these creatures uh, actually ended up becoming the basis for all of the false gods of pagan mythologies all over the world. Right? The, the demon gods spoken of in both the Old Testament and the New. Right? So the Bible describes these Nephilim as giants whose superhuman size, strength, and knowledge could easily have made them appear as gods to ordinary men. Okay, so I'm saying all this. Whether you believe this or not, it's plain from Scripture that these evil beings, uh, they, they instigated a great corruption in the world amongst humanity, uh, both, both spiritually and genetically. Okay, so it was a time of great wickedness and rebellion uh, before the flood that would be hard for us to fathom, even if we did know all the details today, which obviously we don't. Uh, the scripture says in Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. Right? But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then uh, after the flood, after the, the waters had subsided, the descendants of Noah's sons ended up being scattered across the earth from the, the Mesopotamian area 
after their sin at Babel. And the nations and the cultures that we know today began to form. Uh, men forgot, men forgot the lesson that they should have learned from God's destruction of the earth. And they continued to worship the false gods uh, that they worshiped before the flood. And perhaps even some new ones that arose after the flood. Genesis 6 goes on to tell us that uh, not only were the Nephilim on the earth in the days before the flood, in the days leading up to the flood, but also afterwards. So I'm, I'm just going to stress here, after all of this, that the scripture, the scripture doesn't explicitly state that this is the case. Right? Obviously, we know that the Nephilim uh, did bring about genetic corruption. Right? Their sin was uh, interbreeding with the, son, the daughters of men. Um, but all the stuff about them being the, the basis for false gods today, uh, this isn't explicitly stated in Scripture that they were worshipped. I'm just saying that I believe, and I think it's a reasonable inference uh, that we can make from Scripture, that this was the origin of all the pagan de deities uh, that were worshipped in all cultures outside of the nation of Israel. And some of them are still worshipped today. But no matter what these ancient pagan religions uh, were based in, it's undeniable from Scripture that they existed uh, and that they were dangerous. And they drove the peoples who practiced them to do many horrible things. Uh, we see this demon worship in Egypt and among the Canaanites in Moses and Joshua's day and after. Uh, we see it in the wicked empires of Assyria and Babylon and Persia. And we see it creeping in amongst the Israelites time and again. And God bringing judgment and discipline on them time and again. Only to have them return to their idolatry time and again. Now, this is a, a dominating theme throughout the Old Testament. But this worship of false gods wasn't confined to Israel and the Middle East. We know from other sources of history that in North and Central and South America, in China and other Asian nations, in Europe and Africa, we see evidence of these same practices, right? the same demon worship. The Lord had scattered humanity from Babel to the four corners of the earth, and their descendants... Of the descendants of those who challenged God by trying to build a tower to heaven, possibly on the order of these demon gods, or as an act of worship to them, uh, but definitely as an act of defiance to the God of heaven, these people resumed their vain worship in the lands to which they'd been scattered, and their vain attempts to challenge God uh, persisted in their rebellion, and they continued building towers, right? High places of demon worship. We have archaeological evidence. Uh, of ancient pyramid-like structures all over the earth, very similar structures um, on, on, from one side of the globe to another and these unrelated people groups that had no commerce together. Right? And so we could think of these as little babbles, if you will. And all over the earth, we know uh, from archaeological evidence and historical evidence that men worship giants and serpents and practiced the most perverted and disgusting kinds of sexual immorality. They practiced human sacrifice. They worshiped the trees and the animals and the sun and the moon and the stars. They worshiped created things rather than the creator. They worshiped everything, everything but the true and living God, right, who's the only one worthy of worship. And then there was Rome. In the years leading up to the coming of Christ, the great empire of Rome had conquered most of the civilized world, right? Its territory, it completely surrounded the Mediterranean Sea, which was the area that was the center of civilization at that time. 
Um, and at the coming of Christ, the time of the coming of Christ, Rome had ruled the land of Israel, uh, which they called the province of Judah, or Judea, I'm sorry, for 60 years. Uh, having They had taken control of it from the Greeks, who had ruled it for hundreds of years before that. Um, the Roman Empire also ruled Syria, Turkey, and Greece, most of Egypt, all of the coastlands of North Africa, as well as all of Italy and Spain and France. Right? And, the, and the Romans, the Romans worshipped these same demon gods and participated in the same despicable practices as all of these other cultures that we've already mentioned. So we'll talk more about Rome in a bit. Uh, but what I, what I want y'all to see here is that at the time of the coming of Christ, the entire world, apart from the Jewish people, this tiny little pocket there in the Middle East, the entire world knew absolutely nothing but demonic oppression, idolatry, violence, and evil. That was it. They knew nothing but darkness. And the Jews of this time were being slowly overwhelmed by the darkness themselves. Okay, so let's talk about what was going on in Israel now. We talked about the Gentile world. Let's talk about what was going on in, in Judea, as the Romans called it, at the time of the coming of Christ. Uh, at this time, Israel, Israel already had God's revelation of himself that he'd, he'd given to his people in the 39 books of what we know as the Old Testament. They had the law. They had the words of the prophets and the divine poetry of the Psalms. They had the wisdom of the Proverbs. They had the temple. They had the Levitical priesthood. They had the sacrifices. They had the feasts and the festivals. And they had the promises of God that he would give them a savior, an eternal king in the line of David. Now, the problem was that, by and large, the people of Israel at that time, and especially the, the leaders, the religious leaders, didn't understand, view, or practice almost any of these things in accordance with the truth. They had gotten it all wrong somehow. Everything that God had given to them to mark them out as his chosen people had been lost or perverted by their, their, their faithlessness and their, uh, their self-righteousness. And to answer the question of how and why these things happened, right, how and why the Jews, uh, and especially their leaders at the time of our Savior's birth, had strayed so far from the practices and the truths that God had given them, uh, we need to talk about two important aspects of Israel's history. So that's where we're going from here. We need to talk about, uh, first, the kings of Israel. And we need to talk about a time in Israel's history that is known as the intertestamental period. The intertestamental period. So uh, we've seen how the Gentile world has been plunged in, into deep darkness through their worship and service to the demon gods. Uh, now we're going to see the effects that these things had upon Israel. And so let's begin, let's begin with the kings. In the days of the judges of Israel, uh, which are recorded for us in the book of Judges, we find example after example of some of the most uh, disgusting and disturbing and horrible events recorded in Scripture. In the book of Judges, we see stories of violence, of rape and murder, stories of deceit, uh, faithlessness, treachery, adultery, idolatry, and infighting amongst the tribes of Israel. And in this book of Judges, we find a refrain repeated, which is meant to give us sort of an explanation of why 
these heinous acts and events were occurring. And the last instance of this refrain is found in the last verse of the book of Judges in chapter 21, verse 25. And it goes like this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is a statement that the people of those days had abandoned any semblance of service or fealty to the king of the universe, right? To the God who had so graciously covenanted with them and rescued them from slavery in Egypt, given them miraculous victory over their enemies time and again. He'd given them a land of their own, flowing with milk and honey, and they rebelled against him, as, as was their way, right? They wouldn't allow themselves to be uh, governed or ruled by his precepts. And because they rejected him, because they rejected God and refused to walk in his ways, there was, there was chaos in the land. Right? All of these horrible things we talked about earlier. This is what happens when men refuse to follow the king. And they do what seems right to them. There's another saying. It's repeated twice in the book of Proverbs, uh, both in chapter 14 and chapter 16. Uh, we have 1425. Proverbs 1425 says, There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. There's a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. This is exactly what was playing out at the time of the judges, and it's proven itself true throughout all of Israel's history and and all of human history. So immediately, immediately after the time of the judges, we see the people going to Samuel. Um, who was the prophet of the Lord to Israel in those days. And they're going to him, demanding him to appoint for them a king. And so we read this story in 1 Samuel chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Samuel 8, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> and it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. So quickly, from, from the time of Joshua's death uh, to the time of Samuel, God had appointed people to, over Israel to act as judges. They would um, they they advised the tribes, led them in battle, uh, and they would judge between them in civil matters and disputes. These judges had no kingly authority, right? None of these judges ever cons- consolidated the twelve tribes of Israel into one nation. They were just people who the Lord empowered and distinguished in ways that that made the people of Israel want to listen to them. Right, many of these judges had deep personal flaws and made horrible mistakes. Uh, Samson was one of these judges, and Gideon and uh, Deborah and Samuel himself was a judge. And we see here that Samuel's two sons were judges of the deeply flawed variety in verse 2. So now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the, all the other nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. 
like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, and that they have forsaken me and served other gods. So they are doing to you also. So the people wanted a king, but they didn't want it for the right reasons. They didn't want a king uh, because they wanted to be led in righteousness by a man who followed God. They wanted a king because the surrounding nations, right, these pagan uh, Gentile nations that we discussed earlier, uh, had kings. So God had chosen Israel and had called them out of all the other nations to be his covenant people. He'd called them to be holy, separate, and distinct from all of these Gentile cultures. He had called them to not be like the other nations around them. And here they are demanding that God make them like the other nations. And God does it. He does it. He gives them a king. But it's important, uh, it's important to realize here that God didn't acquiesce to this demand because he thought it was a good idea for Israel to have kings like other kings. Right? He didn't do it because he wanted them to be like the other nations. He did it to show them something about true kingship. Right? He did it to uh, foreshadow for them, uh, to, to point them towards the truth, uh, the true and eternal and rightful king of all the nations. He did it so that they might eventually recognize the necessity of what they had rejected, right? that God himself be the true and rightful king over them. So uh, the first king that God appointed in Israel was Saul, King Saul. And Saul was God's way of showing them what their kind of kingship looked like. That's all. He was a, a wicked man and an unrighteous king. And then after Saul, God gave them David. And David was the king that God would use to, to give and, and illustrate for them the promise of the eternal king, right? the promise of the true king, the coming king. Saul was a king after the people's wicked hearts. But David was a king after God's own heart. And God made a covenant with David that the rightful kings of Israel would always come from his lineage, right? And this line would find its uh, end-all, be-all in Christ, the king, the son of David. The Lord decreed that the only rightful kings of Israel would come from the line of David. So after David's death, his son Solomon became the first of the kings in this line. And the Lord reaffirms the covenant he made with David to Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 9 beginning in verse 4 through 7. So this is the Lord reaffirming his covenant with David to David's son Solomon. He says, As for you, if you will walk before me as your father David walked, in integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and will keep my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, just as I promised to your father David, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Right, but there's also a warning accompanying this promise. Verse 6, But if you or your sons indeed turn away from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them, and the house which I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. I will cast the temple down. So Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all the peoples. 
So God's saying, if Solomon and Solomon's sons, these, these rightful kings in the line of David, if they live and rule according to the Lord's commandments, then the kingdom will be blessed. But if they don't, uh, the kingdom will be cursed and the people will be driven out of the land. But if you know anything about Solomon, you know that he ended up falling into the very same demon worship and idolatry that the people of the day uh, seem to be so susceptible to. Uh, in 1 Kings chapter 11, beginning in verse 7, we see this. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. And it commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. So the Lord said to Solomon, Because you've done this, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you, and will give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So Solomon had taken for himself pagan wives and established shrines in high places so that they could worship their demon gods. And God judged Israel by splitting it into two kingdoms after Solomon's death. The northern kingdom was called Israel and the southern kingdom was called Judah. So Israel had been split in two. Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Uh, the southern kingdom of Judah was ruled first by Solomon's son. His name was Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the first king of the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom was ruled by a man named Jeroboam. Uh, Jeroboam had been one of Solomon's trusted and uh, respected servants and advisors. And Jeroboam was not a king in the line of David. No relation to Solomon or David. Therefore, Jeroboam was not a true king over God's people. And he was also uh, a thoroughly wicked king. Right? He built these idolatrous altars in high places. He encouraged the people in idol worship. And the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel that came after him, uh, his, his successors, were no different. Right? And many of them were even worse. To a man... Every single king of the northern kingdom of Israel, from Jeroboam on down, uh, were evil and incompetent and idolatrous men who led the people astray after these demon gods. Every one of them. And after 200 years of patiently calling the people to repentance through his prophets, God finally destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel by the hands of the Assyrian Empire. And her people were scattered into exile from the land because of the idolatry of her evil kings. As goes the king, so goes the kingdom. And the southern kingdom of Judah fared slightly better. Uh, her kings were all descendants of David, and therefore they were rightful kings of the people in the line of David. And some of these kings were righteous men who walked in the footsteps of David and turned the hearts of the people back to God. Uh, but there still arose many wicked and idolatrous kings, even in Judah, even in the southern kingdom, amongst the, the kings in the line of David. 
Um, and these, they, they did the same thing. They built up the high places. They led the people in demon worship, or they neglected to tear down the high places as God had commanded. And again, as with the, the northern kingdom of Israel, God sent them prophet after prophet to warn them of the consequences of their idolatry. But ultimately, ultimately they refused this council. They rejected God. And a hundred years after the destruction of the northern kingdom, God brought judgment upon the southern kingdom of Judah by the hand of Babylon. Completely destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. People carried off into exile. Again, as goes the king, so goes the kingdom. God had fulfilled what he had spoken to Solomon, that if the kings of his line refused to walk in his ways, the people would be vomited out of the land that God had given them. And Jerusalem, along with the temple of the Lord, again, were utterly destroyed. But the Lord was merciful. The Lord was merciful, as he is, and he eventually brought his people back from exile in Babylon 70 years later, and he returned them to the land to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. He restored the priesthood. He reinstituted the proper worship of God through the sacrifices and the, and the holy days and holy times and feasts, but there would be no more kings in the line of David. After this time, after the return from the Babylonian exile, there would be no more kings in the line of David until the final king arrived to claim the throne. So this brings us to the second period in Israel's history that I'd like to talk about. Uh, and that's the period commonly known as the intertestamental period. I know I'm getting all historical here, but y'all bear with me, okay? Um, the intertestamental period. The term intertestamental means between the testaments, right? Intertestamental, between the testaments. This is the time that elapsed between the writing of the last book of the Old Testament and the events that are described in the first books of the New Testament. Right, So this time is also referred to as the silent years, and that's what I'm going to continue to refer to it as because intertestamental is not easy to say. But it's referred to as the silent years because during this time there was no special revelation uh, from God. There was a period of 400 years between Malachi, who wrote the last book of the Old Testament, and the events of the first chapters of the Gospels. 400 years in which God did not speak to his people in the way that he had always, always kind of dealt with them up to that point, right? 400 years, no prophets, no word from God to his covenant people. And the prophet Malachi, again, he was the last prophet that the Lord sent before this 400-year period of silence. And in Malachi's book, we can see some of the things uh, that were happening which prompted this turning away. Malachi was writing about 100 years after the return of the exile in Babylon, and we've already mentioned uh, how the people had returned and rebuilt the city and the temple and reinstituted the sacrifices and the priesthood, and, uh, but there was no king. And because there was no king, the people had to kind of look to the priests and other religious leaders for leadership. Uh, but the priesthood had always been troubled by corruption and idolatry. And this had become even more widespread among the priesthood of Malachi's day. We can read of many instances in the Old Testament scriptures where priests behaved badly and committed abominable sins before the Lord. And though the return of the exiles to Jerusalem had been a time of great light, right when they came back to rebuild the walls and the temple, um, there was a returning of the people to the ways of God. The priest Ezra gave much godly guidance 
And he led the people in repentance and piety. But it, it didn't last long. It didn't last very long. A hundred years later, we find Malachi bringing uh, very strong indictments uh, upon the Jewish people, but particularly upon the priests. And in Malachi chapter 1, we see that the priests are offering blemished sacrifices before the Lord. Um, and we can look at that quickly. Malachi chapter 1, beginning in verse 7. He writes, You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, How have we defiled you? And that you say, The table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly? Says the Lord of hosts. But now... Will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly? Says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. So God in his law had commanded that only perfect and healthy specimens were to be offered to him in sacrifice. And the priests of Malachi's day were offering the lame, and the blind and diseased animals. So the implication here is kind of like the, the people were keeping the best of their flocks for themselves and offering only the undesirable animals, only the animals they didn't want to God. Uh, and, and he even mocks their disobedience here by just kind of sarcastically asking them if they would make an offer of this type uh, of animal to a governor. Why would you give this to some highly respected human figure? Would you give them some blind, lame, diseased animal? And of course they wouldn't. Of course they wouldn't. But they would turn around and offer it to, to the God of their fathers, to the holy God of heaven. Uh, Malachi also mentions in chapter 2 of his book that the people are divorcing their wives to take for themselves uh, wives from pagan women. And in chapter 3, he rebukes them for holding back the tithes and offerings that he commanded in his law. So these are stern indictments against the people and the priests. And all of this, all of these things we see, uh, the Jews are returning to the same sins that had brought down the judgment of God upon them uh, when he carried them off into exile. Same thing over and over again, this cycle. The overarching theme of Malachi is the idea that the Jewish people of his time, they expected blessings from God without obedience to God. Right? That's the whole theme of the book. People demanding blessings from God without offering obedience to God. But the Lord had made it clear in all of his covenants with his people that disobedience to his commandments doesn't bring blessings. It only brings curses. And things only got worse after the time of Malachi. During these 400 years of silence, the Persian Empire, which had been the empire to release the Jews from Babylon, uh, the Persian Empire considered Israel its territory, and they exercised oversight over the Jewish people for more than 100 years after they returned to the land. And the Persians were eventually conquered by Alexander Great and the Greeks. And after this, some of Alexander's successors, right, some of these, these Greek people, these Hellenists, uh, would rule Israel most harshly, even attempting uh, to stop the worship of God in Israel entirely at one point. They made it illegal uh, to offer sacrifices and to keep the Sabbath. You know, they, they enforced this by force. They outlawed all Jewish worship practices. They set up the Greeks set up statues of their demon gods in the temple. And they sacrificed pigs on the altar. 
right? They defiled the temple. And because of this, wars of revolution broke out. So we see this 400 years of silence uh, is starting out pretty rough. Uh, and then the Greeks were conquered by the Romans. And the Romans, as we mentioned before, began their own oppression of Israel. Right? So we have Israel being dominated and trampled upon and oppressed for 400 years by these pagan nations. Right? We have corruption in the priesthood. At the time of the coming of Christ, Israel suffered under an unjust and oppressive system of taxation by Rome. And uh, though Rome, for the most part, allowed the Jews to kind of worship their God as they saw fit and didn't require them to worship uh, the, the Roman pantheon of gods, uh, their pressure had begun to arise during this time, uh, the time of Caesar Augustus, who was the emperor at the time of Christ, to, to acknowledge that the emperor himself was a god deserving of worship. Right, and that's going to become a major issue later on uh, during the time of the early church. So uh, the Romans had also subjected Judea to this heavenly, heavily burdensome and expensive uh, process of, of, of the census, the census that we read about in Luke. Right? That was uh, Jewish families were uprooted and forced to leave their occupations and homes and travel across the land and to register in the cities of their fathers. Right, so this was this was a, a difficult thing. This was a very oppressive thing for the Jewish people uh, in the in the time of the Roman uh, Roman governance. Right, so again, this is why Mary and Joseph had to leave their home in Nazareth while Mary was pregnant to go to Bethlehem. Right, and and so on top of all this, if all this weren't oppressive enough, the Romans had also installed a line of kings to rule over the Jews and to enforce adherence to the Roman laws in Judea. And uh, the worst of these kings was the King Herod of the time of Jesus' birth, known to history as Herod the Great. Right, so there were several Herods, um, and this was the first one. Herod the Great was known for gaining and keeping power by ruthlessly just murdering anybody who he viewed as a possible uh, rival, including his brothers and his wife and his children. The Roman Emperor Augustus uh, actually famously said of him, said of Herod, that it's better to be Herod's pig than his son. And we see his murderous spirit displayed uh, again, uh, horrifically, in the account in Scripture of the slaughter of the innocents, right, which is perhaps one of the best illustrations of the darkness that lay upon the Jewish people at the time of our Lord's coming. Right? Uh, this happened when, when King Herod, in response uh, to the rumors of a promised king of the Jews, being born in Judea in an attempt to preserve his own unrighteous reign, uh, he ordered the murder of every male child in the province under the age of two. Darkness, darkness indeed. And again, to add insult to injury, uh, this man, King, King Herod, ironically was known to the Romans by the title, the King of the Jews. And Herod wasn't even a true Israelite. Herod was actually an Edomite. He was descended from the Edomites. The Edomites were a pagan people uh, who were descended from Jacob's brother Esau, who was himself an idolater. Um, and the Edomites were great enemies of Israel. All throughout history, the Bible gives us accounts of many conflicts between the two nations. So giving Herod the title, the king of the Jews, was an absolute mockery of God's promise to his people through his servant David that the true king of the Jews would come in the line of David and would rule according to the law of God. So, all of this, all of this, 
is to paint this picture. Uh, we see a time of great political persecution and pagan influence over the Jewish people uh, during these silent years. We see issues uh, in the religious sphere, which we'll talk more about here in a second. Um, but to the credit of the Jews, I haven't had much nice to say about them so far, but uh, to their credit, after the return from Babylon, we don't really see them returning to this demon worship that we've been talking about that they had so often fallen into in the past. Right? The, the wars of rebellion that I mentioned earlier came about uh, against the Greeks because the, the, the Jewish people refused to bow to the pagan gods, and they were willing to fight to continue their worship of God according to their interpretation of his commands. But, but even though there wasn't explicit uh, idol worship there amongst the Jewish people, um, the pagan cultures did influence them nonetheless in, in different and more subtle ways. The pagan influence was there. During this period, we see divisions begin among the Jewish people uh, as, as pertaining to their religion. And it's during this time that different sects of Judaism uh, begin to kind of appear and pop up and define themselves. And uh, though it's complicated to explain exactly how all of this came about, how all of this came, it came about the influence of especially Greek thought and philosophy played heavily into this. And I'm not going to get into all of that, um, but it, 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 was, it was the uh, bringing in to the, the Jewish religious system of these Greek ideas and philosophies, and they affected it in many different ways. And it ended up bringing about uh, this division. Right? And there was also an issue with these uh, Jewish leaders wanting to just pander to their Roman overlords. Right? They, 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 would, they wanted to uh, gain power and wealth and uh, status under the Roman system. And this is all the way down to the priests. Right, so we got the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots. Those are the four main groups. I'm not going to get into all the details surrounding them. Um, we, got, we, we know the Pharisees and the Sadducees uh, through the Scriptures, especially the Gospels. Um, the Pharisees, sort of their error was they, they would misinterpret and, and reinterpret the Scriptures according to Greek philosophies uh, and ideas of logic. And they ended up building these laws around the law of God, uh, elevating their own traditions above uh, or on a level with the, the law of God. And then you have the Sadducees, uh, which were, we might consider a little more liberal, but it's kind of funny how all this works out, right? Because the Pharisees were more conservative in that uh, they, they accepted all the Old Testament scripture as uh, being authoritative and binding, but they were more liberal in that they also uh, they, they heaped on these traditions of men and considered them equally as authoritative. The Sadducees were more liberal in that uh, they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in like a spirit world. They didn't believe in an afterlife. And they didn't accept all of the Old Testament uh, books as being uh, uh, scriptural. They, only, uh, they, they looked to the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, as being uh, inspired scripture, and, and they rejected the rest of it. So there's all of this, uh, this kind of... Uh, dissent and fracture going on. Um, you got the Essenes who were sort of like, they, they just kind of got fed up with all of it and went out to the desert uh, and just decided we're going to separate ourselves from it completely. Uh, they stopped participating in the temple worship because they thought it was all corrupt. Uh, and you have the Zealots who kind of religiously believed what the Pharisees believed, but unlike the Pharisees, the Pharisees enjoyed uh, seats in the synagogue and um, they were willing to kind of play nice with Rome to keep their status. The zealots 
just believed they they, they uh, adamantly rejected all of Roman rule and thought that uh, they needed to uh, overthrow Rome by force. So all of this is going on, all of this turmoil, all of this difficulty, all of this darkness uh, is is going on during the time of the coming of Christ. Um. So. We see in all of these kind of different and opposing groups that dominated Judaism at the time of Christ, again, it's a broken and chaotic political and religious environment. Worship of God had become corrupt, and oppressive pagan empires ruled over the people. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Right? This is a picture of darkness. Darkness in the Gentile world. Darkness had crept into even the, even the religious system of the Jews. Um, you hadn't heard a word from God, haven't had a prophet in 400 years. But there was a remnant. There was a remnant that remained of faithful believers. God always preserves for himself a remnant. And the faithful of this time, at the time of coming of Christ, found themselves in this lost world, right, absolutely filled with corruption, sin, and evil dominated by demonic forces, held completely in the power of Satan. Jesus said the whole world up to this time lies in the power of the evil one. And this is including the Jewish people, who should have been a light to the pagan nations. And they were mired in the same sin and hopelessness. All right, but this remnant survived. Uh, imagine them huddled in the darkness. Right, nursing the only light they had, clinging tightly to their only hope, uh, and just desperately trusting in the promises of the Lord and waiting for the fulfillment of those promises. Right, waiting for a savior, waiting for the promised king in the line of David, uh, the, the greater high priest prefigured by Aaron, and uh, the great prophet who Moses said would come into the world, the one who would restore the kingdom to his people free them from bondage to Satan and carry them from the domain of darkness and into his marvelous light. Right, these are the promises of God. This is their last hope, their only hope. Things are dark around them. This is the world that our God entered, in, entered into. This is the world that Christ was born into in the darkness of night, in the gloom of a cave. And so this brings us, finally, to the passage that I read at the beginning of this message. Right, the world in which Isaiah prophesied, right, going back to Isaiah 8, the world in which Isaiah prophesied was much like the world we've been speaking about this morning. Okay, The people of God had turned aside to false worship. Unrighteous kings reigned and led the people in iniquity. The shadow of the conquering empires of Assyria and Babylon loomed over the people. It was a time of darkness, and the remnant of true followers of God and his law found themselves, again, surrounded by this darkness. And so look briefly at Isaiah chapter 1. Right? Isaiah begins his book like this in Isaiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. He says, Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. 
Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Right? Darkness. So think of, think of this as we work through the text I read earlier uh, in Isaiah chapter 8, beginning in verse 16. Isaiah says, Bind up the testimony and seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will even look eagerly for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. He says, bind up the testimony and seal the law among my disciples. Right? So to bind up the testimony and seal the law, these verses are an acknowledgement uh, that in the midst of the darkness, there remained a remnant of faithful believers. Right? And these are the disciples that Isaiah speaks of here. To bind up and seal the law and the testimony among the true disciples of God is a call for them to protect it and to preserve it and to hold fast to it in the midst of the darkness so that God's true followers might cling to it in hope and proclaim it in truth. Right? So this is what the remnant did in the time of Christ as well. This is what this little remnant huddled over the light that we talked about earlier was doing. In the midst of all the darkness in their land, they were holding fast to the word and the hope that God had given them. They were holding fast to his promises. It was bound up and sealed up within them. And because, because they believed his promises, they looked eagerly for him. And we see the same thing here. Right? They looked eagerly for him and waited for his coming just as the remnant of Isaiah's day did, just as it says here. Verse 19. When they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. So Isaiah is speaking again, of the unbelievers of his day, of the people walking in darkness who look to demonic forces and witchcraft for wisdom and power. And even though, like I mentioned earlier, the Jews of Jesus' day, they weren't explicit idolaters in that they weren't worshiping these demons, but they, 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 uh, we saw that they practiced kind of a more subtle form of idolatry. Or the idolatry that's more common uh, in our modern society Right? They raised up intellectual knowledge and false teachings and traditions above the word of God. Um, in the 400-year absence of a prophetic word from God, they didn't cling to the revelation that he had given them before that time. Instead, they, they turned to vain philosophies and their own understanding. Uh, they didn't consult spiritists and, and mediums, but they did seek wisdom according to the spirit of the age and not according to the spirit of God. And just as in Isaiah's day, the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day had been thoroughly corrupted by the idolatries of, of self-righteousness and greed. Right, so the scripture teaches in, in 1 Samuel 15, 23, that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, of, of divination or witchcraft. And insubordination or, or stubbornness and disobedience to the Lord is as iniquity and idolatry. So it was, it was a different kind of idolatry. But it was idolatry just the same in the time of Christ. And what does Isaiah cry out in response to the idolatry of his day? 
He says, to the law and to the testimony. To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. So he's saying, look to the word for truth and guidance, not to these demons, right? Heed the warnings and hold fast to the hope to be had and the promises of God. Love the word, protect it, obey it. If your leaders and teachers and priests don't speak according to the word, it's because there's no light in them. They have no dawn. The word is light. The word is light. In the last two verses we'll look at here, we see what becomes of those who follow idols and reject the law and the testimony. Verse 21. They'll pass through the land hard-pressed and famished, and it will turn out that when they're hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. Then they'll look to the earth, and behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they'll be driven away into darkness. And this is exactly what happened. This is exactly what happened. Uh, this is the world that Christ entered into. The earth had rejected God. Israel had rejected her king. And behold, distress and darkness, uh, the gloom of anguish. And though this, this, in, uh, this, uh, these chapters in Isaiah, it was, it was truly a word to Isaiah's audience, right? It was meant for the people of his time, but it is also a prophecy of the time of the coming of Christ, right? And we'll see that, uh, no doubt, over the next few Sundays. So to wrap all of this up, to wrap all of this up, I'd like to draw out just a point of application from all of this, all right? Briefly, every sermon needs application. And I hope it'll act as a word of encouragement to you throughout this, uh, this, this season, this special season. We've talked a lot about darkness this morning. Right? We talked about a lost world filled with sin, idolatry, and evil, held under the power of the evil one, without light and without hope. I want you to remember, right, brothers and sisters, everyone in here, I want you to remember that this dark world that existed before the light came and shined into it, right? This lost world that lived in complete bondage to sin and that struggled in futility under a sure sentence of death, this darkness, this is a picture of what we were, of what we were before God shone the light of Christ into our hearts. All this disgusting pagan filthiness and this disobedience and this idolatry and this demon worship, that was us. That was us before Christ changed us. Right? We were enslaved to sin. We were dead and dying. We were in danger of hell. We were helpless in the power of Satan. We were lost in the darkness. And so our Lord Jesus told the Apostle Paul after his conversion in Acts chapter 26, he says, I'm sending you as a witness to the Jews and the Gentiles both of whom are walking in darkness. And the Lord tells Paul that he was being sent to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. That's what we're talking about here. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about the dominion of Satan, the dominion of darkness versus the dominion of God, the kingdom of Christ and light. We read the same thing in Colossians 1 several weeks ago that he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. 
So all of the horrible and wicked things that we've been talking about that filled and dominated this world before the coming of Christ once filled and dominated us. And all of these forces of darkness are still at work in the world today. And there are lost and dying people all around us today walking in this darkness. They are slaves to sin and a sentence worse than death hangs over them. Walking in darkness, walking in lostness in the kingdom of Satan. Aren't you glad, brothers and sisters, that God has graciously brought you into the light. Don't you thank God for that? So, do you want to see these lost people? Many of them are friends and family, lifted out of this darkness as well, and transferred to the kingdom of Christ. Brothers and sisters, we have the light. We have the light. We are called to be light to this world, Use this season. This season provides us with a unique opportunity to speak these truths to people. Right? Use this season and the celebrations that accompany it to share the light with those walking in darkness. So we're celebrating the coming of light into the dark world and the breaking of the bonds and the power of the evil one. We're celebrating these things. We need to draw others into this celebration. Right? We need to bring this gospel of light out into the world. Again, as Trey mentioned this morning, it's, it's so easy in the season to get distracted with all the busyness. And I'm all for the joy and the, and the, and the parties and the having fun. Um, but if we do this, right, but we don't do what is necessary for us to give true, uh, true credence and true reverence and true appreciation to the light that God has given us by, by sharing that light, then we've missed the point of all of it. And our celebration, our festivities are, are in vain. Right? That's what we're here for. There's hope for the world. It doesn't have to end in darkness. So go out and tell them. Right? Just like I'm telling you here today, though our story here today was one of darkness, uh, we can take heart because there is, there is light. There's light to come. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, please prick our hearts with this. Father, I've... Uh, Endeavored here to show the depths of darkness, or to show just exactly what you came to save the world from. Father, help us to see the truth of what this darkness really is, of how horrific it really is. Help us to see it hanging over these folks who walk by us every day. And help us to recognize, Lord, that that same light that you saved us with, Lord, that you brought us into the light of Christ. Father, can save them just as it saved us. Lord, give us a desire to see this happen. Help us not to be ashamed of you. Lord, help us to be the light you've called us to be. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.